2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. A few months ago, a stingray got pregnant. Except there were no male stingrays in the tank, which raised a question. Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? But scientists think... There is no daddy. And it's not just this stingray. All kinds of animals are getting pregnant all on their own. This week on Unexplainable, what exactly is going on here? Follow Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. Hey there. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast, Episode 2. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff, my co-hosts. Our guest today, Rolling Stone's Janet Reitman. And Janet, for anyone who's not familiar with her work, is a writer for Rolling Stone. She's also the author of Inside Scientology, which is uh, perhaps the most meticulously reported uh, book on Scientology out there. It's actually fantastic. I highly recommend it. Um, I think one of the really interesting things about her work is just the range. She is the kind of like the classic long-form reporter who you can send anywhere to do a piece, but it's not a bullshit parachute-in piece. She spends so much time, and she's such a meticulous researcher and reporter that the pieces that she generates, you know, they feel authentic. They are, they're based on so much reporting, and her writing is, is fantastic as well. I don't see why people are always denigrating people for parachuting in. It seems like kind of a <laughs> <laughs> difficult uh, maneuver. But yeah, this this was a really interesting discussion. Um, I I knew about um, her pieces, but I, I didn't really know how long she had spent in Iraq. And um, she's like a person who's who's lived a life alongside her reporting, um, and in in a lot of ways has has really sculpted her life around it. And it's interesting to hear someone talk uh, frankly about the challenges of living in a war zone when you're in a relationship and that kind of thing. So uh, without further ado. Hey, this is Aaron. Uh, A small disclaimer before we get going. When we started this podcast, we didn't really know what we were doing. And as a result, this uh, episode ended up sounding pretty much like shit. So uh, the ones in the future should be far better. And apologies for this one. If you're listening at home, you might want to turn it up. Where, Where did you start? I started... I, re- I mean, I really started as a stringer for Reuters, believe it or not, um, like maybe a year or so after. I went to grad school at Columbia, and when I got out, um, I was wor- I worked for Reuters for a short, relatively short amount of time, maybe half a year. Um, and I went to, uh, it was 1994, and I went to Haiti to cover um, the U.S., the impending U.S. invasion so I worked for Reuters, I strung for them, I strung for the Washington Post, so I did do some news, I strung for the New York Daily News. 
So I did do some newspaper reporting. Um, I was terrible at it. It was, I was working in a team with a bunch of people that were covering this invasion. And so I was collaborating with them, right? And then I was also phoning in quotes. This was before we could really do this on, on the internet. This was in the mid-90s. I was phoning in quotes to the desk in New York. I could, like, no problem. Here's my notes, here's the quotes, yeah. like, no big deal, right? But, like, trying to write all of that in a nice, coherent story within, like, a three-hour window, I couldn't do. And so, anyway, they, they thought I was great, and they had me come back um, when I came to New York and come into the Daily News and, like, sort of try out for a job. And they sent me to do, you know, a number of stories, like, you know, some story about the subway, some story about some other local, they were all sort of local stories, maybe a cop story, and I, I literally like couldn't do any of them. I, I, was, I would sit there and be completely frozen and unable to write these stories, and I just you know, didn't even know even like what questions to ask. I had no clue. I was just, I just, you know, what happened was basically, so I bombed at the Daily News. The yeah. story is, I bombed at the Daily <laughs> News, and I'm back out, um, kind of going, what am I gonna do? And I, but I knew some people, in the magazine world. And yeah. even when I was in Haiti, I had um, hooked up with magazine editors who were eager to you know, get a story from me. Actually, my, my, my long-term boyfriend, partner, whatever you want to call it, um, was an editor at Details at the time. And he, was, he had assigned me a story about Haiti in 1994. That's actually how we met. Um, so I had a whole kind of network of contacts, and I would try to write. So I spent sort of the 90s trying to write stories, and I had a lot of like great sort of quasi-successes. Um, the thing was, was that I didn't know how to write these stories. I could do a great pitch. Like, I knew how to pitch something. I knew how to sell something. I knew what the news value was. I, I was a good enough writer. But I didn't know how to put a story together. And I think one of the core... Um, the core things you have to understand about magazines, and particularly today, is that these editors, uh, who certainly when I began were wonderful, really wonderful, um, and many times very nurturing, encouraging, and really understood writing, but they don't have the time to teach you how to be a writer, you know? So, um, so I kind of bombed at Esquire. I did a story for them and didn't work out. I did a story for, oh gosh, four or five other magazines, National Geographic, Adventure, um, and what? a variety, New York Magazine, like a number of them. And they all, I got, they all were killed, every single one of them. Were these stories that you wanted to do? Yeah, I lived on Kill Feast for six years. <laughs> you know, I think really everybody has their own experience, but I think that for me, um, it was, a, it was a long period of trial and error. You have to teach yourself. No one can teach you how to be a magazine writer, really. I mean, I, I think these people that do come from newspapers um, and have worked on a daily basis with editors and, and have had editors really put them through their paces, they probably have a different kind of discipline. They're able to... Um, they don't have as high, maybe as high... I mean, they certainly have high expectations for themselves, but they, they have an ability to say, it's good enough, it needs to go, I have a deadline, this is it, right? Where I was like, no, no, it has to be rewritten 50,000 times, everything has to be perfect. Um, and so that was not a good thing. I would be like months late on deadlines and that kind of thing. And, um, and then, of course, you write yourself into a hole because usually your best ideas are your first ideas. I tell you, it's not. It's really not that easy unless you sit down and you study, study, study other people's work and really like st 
study them. Did you did you study other people's work? I did, but I studied probably, you know, the people I loved. Like I love Joan Didion, like every young woman. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, Another topic. <laughs> yeah, and um, I, you know, I loved all the new journalists, and I loved. Um, I really loved like Rian Milan, who at the time was had done that great book about Africa, My Traitor's Heart. It was about South Africa. Um, that's interesting. I like Mark Bowden's work at the time a lot. Right. Um, well, Bowden's sort of different. I was, I mean, I was thinking about the new journalists and you know, sort of diagramming a story or reverse engineering mm-hmm. a story. Mm-hmm. A lot of that, that sort of new wave of journalism is it would be difficult to reverse engineer in the same way. Um, there's a certain amount of freedom sort of yeah. that pulses through it that doesn't exactly tell you how to write a story on a deadline that's going to get accepted by an editor. Yeah. Was there, was there anywhere, ever anyone you were like, yes, this is exactly, this is exactly how I want to do it. This is, this is my template. Um, I, I will honestly tell you that every story I write, there's usually one story that's a template. There's one story right now that's a template for a story I'm working on. Oh, interesting. Give me, give me an example. I'm, uh, I'm, Thinking through stories of yours that um, that I've read, I mean, the well, Scientology one come, come, uh, comes as an example. What is what was sort of the model? Because there isn't really a model for covering a Scientology. I'd say, that so. one didn't have much of a model. That one didn't have much of a model. The um, the Haiti story I wrote last summer, um, I looked at uh, uh, Ben Wallace. Wallace had done a huge story on Darfur. Uh-huh. And it was similarly. It was. An, it was kind of one of these sprawling overviews of, you know, the American involvement in Darfur. Um, and I looked at how he did it because it was Haiti. This Haiti story was extremely difficult. I worked on it for like nine months. Same thing with the Scientology piece. Um, so that was a kind of an, a real influence. I mean, when I wrote my book on Scientology, I um, used. I looked at John Krakauer's Under the Banner of Heaven and read it like religiously religiously to see how he did it um, what, when what kind of what kind of insights did you pick up looking at something like that I like to see how people write about some similar topics you know for example in in the crack hour book he wrote about Joseph Smith who is a somebody that, that most non-mormons maybe are not so familiar with but you don't want to give like this gigantic, lengthy explanation of every aspect of his early life. But he's hugely important, and he's you know, um, and Krakauer sort of very deftly gave you just what you needed to know about his childhood and just what you needed to know about his parents. And it was just like a very instructive way for me to write about Ellen Hubbard, who was the founder of Scientology. Um, I got very I, I mean, remember this distinctly because I got so hung up on writing about his early life his childhood and just like because it's an, an area that experts have dwelled upon yeah and so well I think there's always always when you I think you're supposed when, to dwell when I've seen Scientology I mean some of these topics like Scientology or Mormonism are just so incredibly complex and there's so much sort of counterfactual history in them that you know, and, and particularly with something like Scientology, um, they're so there's a real burden to get everything both absolutely correct and comprehensive yeah. um, when you know that you are going to be fact checked like uh, 
no one before. I would say that was probably the most heavily fact-checked story that I've ever written. Um, I was really, it, that was interesting because I had written, I'd by this point been a contributing editor at Rolling Stone, which what, is a What, con- was, what a con- was the first story you did for Rolling Stone? It was on, oh, it was on a, um, it was on a teenage girl who, um, it, basically my assignment was to go find the new American slut, quote unquote, to find the most, pro- the promiscuous, the new girl, the new own your own sex, like influenced by Brittany and Christina. And those, Did you, you pick know. this out of three options? No, I was actually <laughs> given this by my editor, Will Dana at the time, who's now the editor of the magazine. Um, he um, uh, assigned this to me and later told me that he gave me what he thought was an impossible assignment. So I would just kind of go away. Okay, and so. I was like, you know, oh, oh and, and so I read some of, I read Jancy Dunn, who at the time was writing for Rolling Stone and the kinds of stories she did. I mean, I read, I read a lot of, you know, I read a lot of the stories of our own magazine. Yeah. We have to rewind yeah. here back to the mm. American slut. So mm. the American slut was going to be a real person or a mm. slut? Oh, okay. She was and is a real person. She was from, I went to my high school and went back to find that girl, like the suburban, I grew up in, in a, you know, upper middle class New Jersey suburb. And I went back to my high school and found, had called up somebody who ran like a women's studies little program in my high school and said, who's the most, who's the most radical chick you have who's actually, who, who all the guys want to sleep with and who, you know, who's, who's going to do it her way. And she gave me like the perfect girl and she said yes. And so we did this story about her and some of her friends. Because this, does, this does kind of sound to me like the impossible assignment. It was. It was because you're talking about like bombing these yeah. war reporting stories. And, you know, it seems well, like there's some template for it. All right. This, this is a uh, this this one sounds like the, the real challenge. I had done here's the gen, here's the sort of genealogy of this. Yeah. All right. So I had done my my ni- 1990s African adventures. I went to like four different. I was besides Haiti. I was in Sierra Leone. I was in Sudan. I was in. Yeah. Um, parts of Kenya, I was in, uh, I feel like maybe, I, maybe that was it in the night, and later I went to Zimbabwe, for, but that was a little bit later. Anyway, I did, I was, I went a number of times, I was, I was there a lot, and um, then uh, I started writing these stories for the LA Times, um, and I had this other, the other magazine that I was writing for was ESPN, which had just sort of started. And I had done a story for them about an extreme athlete and a base jumper who died in Yosemite. And that actually came out really, really well. And I had really good editing and that, you know, it was really good. So um, I had this sort of other side gig going on where I was writing about young people in sport and like kind of extreme sports and things like that. Um, so I, I had, was able to kind of parlay that, um, particularly at the end of the 90s, when there was no, this was before 9-11 and we really didn't see any kind of international crisis on the horizon, um, I kind of made it a deal with myself and I said, enough, I'm not, I'm not, this is clearly this travel stuff is not paying off for me and I need to focus, if I focus on domestic stories, that's where I get the assignments because that's what the magazines want. They have, you know, they don't need to spend a huge amount on my travel and, you know, that's what readers want to read. So, it seems like you made a sort of a shift there from Africa to a sort of story about America yeah. that w- with that and the new American slut um, was that like a conscious move in your mind like yeah. get some get some headlines start start digging in on America here 
Yeah, I, well, not to get headlines, but um, it was. I never thought about getting headlines. I never ever thought about it until very, very, very recently, until the advent of Twitter. And I, I didn't. I, I've never thought about this. I thought about. Um, I thought about what I could do, and I mean, there's a. Um, you know, there's a bit of a dirty secret, I think, for women who write. I was very intent on, I was going to write for men's magazines. I had a list of the magazines I was going to write for. And they were like GQ and Esquire, Rolling Stone. Um, Rolling Stone was kind of like at the top with GQ, um, both of whom I wound up writing for. Um, the New York Times Magazine, still haven't written for them really. Um, and I was never going to be a, tip, a chick, you know, doing chick stories. And I say this um, not because I think there's anything wrong with those stories, and I think that those stories are just as, you know, stories about relationships, stories about women's health, stories about whatever that impact women are just as important as any other story and should be treated just like any other story. But the reality is, and continues to be, that women who write those stories are ghettoized into the women's magazine Ghetto, which now has its own category in the National Magazine Awards, which delegitimizes de this genre even more, because um, it's not counted now among the rest. You know, you're often you're being judged with girls, yeah. and it's incredibly insulting. Um, and so I was just not going to be a part of it, and I was like, you know, I'm going to push this. So I'm going to go cover a fucking war. I'm going to go write amazing investigative pieces. You know, I'm going to be like Jane Mayer. Jane Mayer is one of the people I completely admire. Like as a as a current role model, I'm in just in awe of her career. You know, she's amazing, and that's like what I wanted to be. So, however, the only way you can do that, or I felt that I could do that, and it's fairly true for some of my younger women colleagues is to come in the door through writing about something that is going to get your male editor's blood flowing. And what that is, is kids and sex. And, you know, how do I say this? Um, certain types of young women who are or relatively young women who like guys, who are guys, girls, um, can get these kinds of stories, can get guys to talk to them, um, guys enjoy talking about sex with them, and I was one of those people. And it was, a, it was, I, I basically it sounds so disgusting. I saw an opportunity, and I, and also I, I can totally do this with girls because I'm a girl. You know, I, I, you know, saw this opportunity, and I was like, I can do this. You know, I'm not, you know, they're not going to look at me like I'm their mom or their like nasty big sister. They're going to be like, oh, she's kind of cool. You know, I'd like to hang out with her. You know, have a beer with her. Or, you know, get stoned with her or whatever. And, um, you know, she, you know, I could talk about sex with her. It's okay. And, and it worked. Well, this <laughs> I mean, is it's a, really unbelievable that I'm saying this. It's sort of a, it's a beat that I feel like uh, Rolling Stone almost pioneered. I remember Rolling Stone story. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I was uh, about 13 or 14 years old. Um, so this was the early 90s, mid-90s. There was a story in Rolling Stone. This is before the internet, so like mm. you couldn't like read about what people were doing in college or anything mm. like that. There was a story about fuck buddies. Yeah, in Rolling Stone, that just blew my mind. Like, probably ch changed my life. Like, I remember my parents were always like, "Ah, you're not gonna get into college. You're fucked up." And I, I read that story. I was like, "God, get into college!" Like, 
It basically sold me on higher education. But oh my god, I'm so gonna tell my editors. Yeah, I got and that's another story I wish someone would put online. But so you took on you know, you saw this this doorway and you walked through it and you did a few of these stories, but then within five years you're doing stories on Scientology. Yeah. You're you're taking on some pretty big stories. Well, I will I I mean just to like be fair to this to this because I kind of can't believe I just said what I said. It's really kind of admitting yeah. something that is yicky. Um, I, don't, I don't. I don't think it's yicky. Rolling Stone, in particular, is an amazing. Um, it's an amazing magazine because it was the first, and it continues to be the best magazine at looking at youth culture as 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 absolutely as valid and as newsworthy and as important, not as cool necessarily, but as important as any other facet of culture. They take sex really seriously. They take drugs really seriously. They take music really seriously. They take pop culture as a phenomenon really seriously. And, and the intersection of, of politics and youth culture has always been a really big part of the magazine. And so what Rolling Stone offers you is not just a chance to write a skeezy sex story, but to write, to, to interpret, to do, give a sociological interpretation, but in a way that's not like so sort of you know, ugh, like like an Atlantic story, which is like talking, you know, at people. It's talking to parents. This is talking to young people themselves or talking to, you know, older people who are interested in the culture mm-hmm. and explaining the culture to them. And that's like very Joan Didion, by the way. And that's the kind of thing I, of course, at the time when I was a young, younger journalist, I loved her. And that's what she had done so well. And that's what Rolling Stone had always done so well. So, I mean, that, the decision to do those kinds of stories was a, was a combination of, like, knowing that, that I, could, I could definitely get that, those kinds of assignments. But that I was going to, you know, I, uh, they were really valuable stories to do. Um, and that I would do them really well because I liked analyzing our culture and, and analyzing, like, I liked looking at... Um, you know, what Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera meant for young, really young girls and how they had maybe influenced them um, in ways that were both positive and negative, but that in certain ways that were really positive and how young women were, were taking what they were getting, and that, you know, were, were interpreting the media, how kids were interpreting media and how it was fucking with their lives, essentially. Like how, how the objectification of very young kids was really fucking with kids. I mean, that was like an obsession. It continues to be kind of an obsession of mine. And... So, um, so I did a number of these kinds of stories, and um, in 2004, I'd been at Rolling Stone for several years, and um, but still a freelancer. I was still able to write other for other magazines and stuff. Um, I had been there for a number of years, and uh, we, the magazine, Yon One in particular, wanted to do a story about. Um, the journalists in Iraq, because the news had just broken about all the, um, it was just after the, the Fallujah incident where they burned the bodies of the, the contractors, they killed the contractors and burned their bodies, and then they started attacking, going after reporters, and reporters were kind of hiding in their, in their hotels, and so there was this, this story was at the time, like, how do you report this war, and he's, they wanted to do that story, and because I had, a, you know, by this point now, 10 years of Contacts with people who covered conflicts, um, who I still saw parties and still kept in touch with to some degree or another. Um, I 
pitched them very hard that they should let me go do this, that they didn't have anybody. Um, well, Evan Wright had gone and done his Invasion of Iraq story, and he wasn't going to do, and he did his series, and I think he was off writing Generation Kill. Um, and so they needed somebody to do this, and I was the best person to do it, and I knew all the right people, and here's my proposal, and I will totally go do it, and I'm not afraid to do it, and I'm going to do it. And I've covered conflicts before, and I've you know been in the crappiest places in the world, and they, they went for it, um, and I basically spent the better part of 2004 in Iraq doing not just that story, but three or four other stories um, on the war, covering the war, essentially, for them. And um, how, how much time total did you spend in um, Probably, if, if I, in the last nine months of 2004, I probably spent maybe half the time there or a third of the time there. I mean, it was, it was, um, but I was, you know, even when I wasn't there, I was immersed, I was writing the story. It was, there was no other, there was nothing else I was doing. It was like, I was in Iraq, reporting, I'd come back and write and I'd go back to Iraq. Um, and I continued to write about Iraq even after I was not going, like I, I did several more stories into 2005, I guess, um, on Iraq. You know, a girl I knew um, died in a suicide bombing at an aid worker I knew, and so I wrote a story about her. I, I don't know very much about war reporting. Um, is there a line between the person who is living in Baghdad for the next 10 years versus someone who's coming in and out? Like, Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, the way it works is this. Like I said, there are these different variations. You have the young, young, and you have the right. young, and then you have the older. And the older group, um, they tend to be people who, are, who have been graced with the good fortune of being given a $10,000 cash advance and flown in and said, right, which is what, happened, you know, what happens to people from a magazine um, you know, like a New Yorker or a Rolling Stone or Newsweek or the big, big magazines. Um, who send their special correspondence. And um, unless you're an absolute idiot, there's no pushback towards you. I mean, you're like, uh, you know, you're, you have the, the plummest job there is. The worst job there is is that kid who's 24, he's trying to make it, and is, is you know, basically everybody's grunt. Um, and he's living in like the crack, he or she, well, actually mostly a lot of she's. Really? Oh yeah, tons of girls. They're living in like the crappiest places. They're living maybe three or, you know, just like they wouldn't in, in, you know, they live in, in like Bushwick. I mean, they live in like crappy places, <laughs> seriously. They live where, in where crappy is, where places. Where is the Bushwick of <laughs> 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 was like all the bad guy at one point was like Bushwick. Um, you know, they're living on like... They're living off of the largesse of people like myself, and I had lived off of the largesse of people like myself. So I, I remember one time I took like ten freelance kids out to dinner. Like we just—I mean, we were eating dinner at my hotel, and we were just sitting around drinking. And, and there was maybe one or two older reporters and a bunch of younger people, and I just paid for the whole bill off of our sorry young winner <laughs> expense account because it was like you know I remember how much that meant to me just financially, when I was struggling, I mean, I couldn't afford to be in certain places unless somebody was going to put me on their expense account. Um, so, you know, there's, 
I think there's very little pushback in that regard. I think that certainly you have to be respectful of people that know much more than you, and I was. Like, I sought out John Burns, and I sought out Dexter Wilkins, and um, a number of... Um, Melinda Liu from, from Newsweek was at the time the, one of the, the Baghdad bureau chief. Um, and a number of people who were very hardcore and who had, been, had covered Iraq before... And I would say freely, look, this is my gig now. I mean, this is like, here I am. I've been doing, I've, I covered other conflicts. I know a lot of these people. It, it really helped me that I knew everybody. That was the thing. And then I wrote the story about the press, which made me both, certain, in certain ways, really unpopular and in certain ways, like, really popular. What, what, what about the story made you unpopular? Well, nobody wants to have their dirty laundry aired. No, there was right. one, a couple of people that were like, I can't believe you said that I smoke weed. And I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck? Like, why would I not, you know, that is going to get you fired from your job? Like, what, what universe are we living in? I, I, I can't understand this. Like, still, I can't believe you said I smoke weed. Like, what? Um, you know, we're drinking. Like, oh my goodness, you know, we're... <laughs> Yeah. We're in a war zone where this is an active war. They are bombing us. Like, you think you're not going to have a friggin' beer? I am. What's, you know, so those kinds of people yeah. are a little upset. But other people, um, you know, reporters like to be quoted. We're experts. Nobody ever talks to us. We talk to them. But we're the, you know, we like to think of ourselves as the experts. So here's a story where it's all about reporters. And so some of the, some of the, you know, I would say some of my friends and colleagues with larger egos um, were, were um, you know, and who felt that they had valid things to contribute were, were happy to take part, or who just didn't, just thought it was cool to be in a Rolling Stone article, or who just didn't, you know, thought this kind of an article was newsworthy. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why people would have done it, and um, it came out, you know, I thought it came out well, I was really happy with it, and, um, but anyway, like, that was... Um, that was a really major uh, cause, I guess, for me. That was like the most seminal year of my journalistic life was covering the Iraq War. Um, you know, and I hated the Iraq War. And I just like so trying to cover it in a fair way while feeling like we were just committing an absolute war crime there was was also a challenge. But it's the uh, that's in a certain way that's the work I'm the most proud of. Mm-hmm. Even though I've done other work that I'm really proud of, like that, for some, I survived that experience, and it was tough. And we did lots of really crazy things, like you know, went to places completely unprotected. I didn't do; I wasn't like an embedded reporter. I did a lot of independent reporting. So um, it was, you know, it was a great, it was a great experience, and um, I'm not covering wars today. But <laughs> uh, tell me about why. Um, Well, I, mean, I, I have, I mean, I think my boyfriend would just kill me. I mean, I think it's, it's just, at some point, you, 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 most people that have families, they kind of begin to taper off. I think that um, there is a period, it was, I remember specifically, like in 2003, I was in Djibouti covering um, the war on terror from the Horn of Africa while we invaded Iraq, essentially, <coughs> covering the whole... You know, I was that was for the New York Times magazine. It was like this whole thing of being in various parts of the world and blanketing the war on terror or something. But um, anyway, um, that was another story. That that was a story that didn't work out either. <laughs> Many stories don't work out. Um, 
but I, I, I very much remember like having friends who had known me a long time just saying, you know, like when are you just going to settle down, you know, and get married or have family or just, you know, stop this running around and and it gets really, really tiring and exhausting and it begins, you begin to feel like you have no friends, you're really transient, you have no stable root. Um, and your friends are, you know, your friends are abroad, your friends are in whatever disaster zone you're going to go to. And, and, and at some point, one of those disasters generally catches up with you. And um, I, I had a number of experiences, particularly in Iraq, that I was like, I am not going to die in this place. Like, this is not worth it. I am not going to die here, you know? I mean, on a certain level, I was like, if I die here, I've done really good work. And it was worth it because I hate this war and I want to tell the world how much I hate this war and how, you know, fucked up it is for our troops and how fucked up it is for the Iraqi people. And that's, these are the stories I'm trying to tell. But on the other hand, I was like, you know what, I'm not going to, this is not worth it. This war is not worth it. This war was for nothing. It's like dying in Vietnam. It's wars for nothing, you know. And, uh, and I just think like, you know, I, that's kind of how I... I, I was, you just get to this place where you're like, I just don't, I don't want to die. I had friends who just, who died last year in Libya, and, uh, which was incredibly scary, and I had no desire to go there, and it just sounded unbelievably scary and intense, and, you know, it was a waste of great, talented people, and, uh, you know, I just, I, I don't get that rush from it that I used to, I'm not, I'm not, 27 anymore, and I just don't get that same adrenaline rush. I also know absolutely that I am not immortal. <laughs> I am not bulletproof. And I think once you begin to realize that, and, and if you have a relationship, I think that if you have, um, once you realize that people at home really love you and care for you, and you love them back, that you, you feel a responsibility that you can't, um, it, at least for me. And I, it's not true for every woman, and it's certainly not true for every guy. I know lots of married guys that do this, you know, but I just think that sometimes it, it, you know, either owns you completely or you, you kind of leave it to the younger people to, to, to go for. And I might still do something, like, if, the, if it was a great story, but I don't know if I would put my life at risk quite the way I used to. So, I mean, knowing that about yourself now, what what takes that place for you? Well, I mean, investigative reporting is um, I love. And uh, I think, I mean, I'm working on a story right now about, um, about anonymous, but about a specific anonymous hacker and um, who is a, also a... a pretty serious anarchist and very serious anarchist and about so it's about the, you know I'm I'm fascinated with the government's crackdown on both hackers and anarchists and their view of who is and who is not dangerous and sort of the increased surveillance of of, um, of civilians of American citizens and, and that's that kind of thing I mean I'm really interested in, in what's happening in our country um what, what attracts you to... And what's happening all over the world. I mean, in terms of uh, danger, I feel like you can't... Um, 
you kind of totally lost that urge in terms of writing about Scientology and Anonymous, which are seem like two of the more uh, dangerous places in America to write about right now. What what attracts you to that to the to groups like that? I didn't find either of them dangerous. I mean, Anonymous is probably shouldn't talk about it since the story is still in the process of okay. being written. To be to um, be discussed in the case of Anonymous, but yeah, yeah in terms of Scientology, going after someone who really has a history of. Um, really going after reporters who cover them. I knew nothing about Scientology when I got that assignment. Oh, interesting. Um, And I have no interest in celebrities at all. And I was like, uh, you know, and my editors were like, we don't want you to write about the celebrity thing. We want you to write about what Scientology does to kids, you know, that they're supposed to split up families. And like, what are they? Find out what they're about. Embed with them, basically. My editors like, embed with Scientology. Um, And... uh, and I just found it a challenge. I thought they were sort of this weird subterranean world. But actually, I, I, was, I found them in, impossible. And I fought against, psychologically kind of fought against writing about them. And I remember very vividly, I was at the beach um, with, my, with my boyfriend on, on vacation. And he was, he's also a journalist. And he was like, you know, you need to look at these people as if they're Sierra Leoneans. Like, you need to look at them as as foreign as any of the African people you've covered and just approach them like that, you know? They're a really cool other culture and look at them as completely foreign. It was great advice and it was, um, it worked. And I began to look at them that way and I was like, oh, okay, I can do this. What's it like sort of leaving a subculture like Scientology and moving to Anonymous, which is another extremely obscure subculture with a, its own codes? and um, No offense to Scientology, but it's like beautiful to leave that. <laughs> I was in it for five, you know, I mean, I was writing a book for four years with nothing, five years essentially because of the article, with nothing else. It's fantastic. Um, I, I think writing about a group like Anonymous, and I'm not writing about them in the in the way that people think I'm writing. You know that you might think I'm writing about them. Um, but writing about that kind of subculture, and, and it's really difficult. I don't understand technology. I'm not a technical person at all. Um, but I'm really, really interested in the future war. I'm interested in, and I'm interested in popular uprisings and popular movements and revolts and how um, the I, I didn't really get really involved in the Occupy movement. I didn't. I, some of my colleagues like wrote all about it at Rolling Stone and spent time there and all this stuff. I didn't really do that, um, but I have paid attention to how this is, you know, sort of what's been going on all over the world, and I'm really fascinated by you know, the sort of sea change going on in our country and, and, um, and increasingly tightening standards of security and, you know, um, and surveillance and this whole idea of, a, you know, like this top secret America idea where we have a sort of shadow infrastructure, a shadow CIA, a shadow FBI, a shadow, you know, you know pri- a whole network of private security and, and private intelligence companies that we farm work out to and no government oversight, you know, that stuff is really interesting to me and the people who are aware of it and trying to do something about it are also really interesting to me so you know um it's it's an intellectual challenge but i think it's like i think what's really motivating to me is anything that is um one a good story and two really important you know quote unquote you know i like to think that 
I like to do stories that I feel are important. How do you you said that you are not a heavily technical person and obviously yeah. there's a technical element to being in a hacker collective. Yeah. How do you how do you approach that and how do you how do you equalize for your own deficiencies when you're when you're Well, I try to write about I'm writing about people um, and politics and I've made friends with people that can be my translators. And I'm very open about the fact that I know nothing. I mean, that's like one of my rules with any... I think that every reporter should admit you know nothing. And when you do, there will be people that will take pity on you and try to teach you. And then you have to be shrewd enough to know who's spitting you and who's trying genuinely, who's being genuine with you. Um, but if you go into something and thinking you know everything, um, as soon as you make a mistake... First of all, they'll be waiting for you to make a mistake, and as soon as they do, they'll laugh at you. I mean, that, that's, I think, true in any group you go into, you know, any, 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 any place you try to cover. Um, you're always the outsider, unless it's your beat. Um, I, I want to ask one more question. It's the question that I would really, I'm almost tempted to not ask it, but mm-hmm. I, I think, I think, you know, I'll just be honest about when we were, we were talking about people coming on this show, we said very clearly, we need to have a woman on this show in our first two episodes. Um, so you picked me up so um, And that, you know, that sounds just sort of terrible on the surface that that's even a concern, but I could list 20 different sort of gender issues that, that could have come up across this, starting with you saying that you, um, you know, you wanted to go hard at writing for these men's magazines mm-hmm. when you were a young writer, and now you've come down that road a while, you're probably in contact with women who are younger than you, who yeah. are right, who are where you were at coming out of Columbia Graduate School. What, where are we now with that stuff? And, and what, what have you learned? Well, I think that um, there is, um, I mean, there are a number of things that are going on with women and writing. Um, the number of women, women's bylines in these magazines have, are sorely underrepresented. And I think that like, in order to have, be able to talk about this, you have to understand the nature of where we are in magazines. And magazines have shrunk yeah. and have cut staff. And um, when you shrink and cut staff or when you downsize in any way, um, you, know, you have to make a choice of who you're going to go with. And you tend to stick with the people you love and know. Um, so you notice that at certain magazines you'll see the same bylines uh, constantly. Um, people who've been in a magazine, uh, certain men's magazines, for years and years, and long, they are long past their prime, and it's quite well acknowledged within the world of magazine writing that they're long past their prime, and yet they continue to be at these magazines because they're beloved and because they, they cost a lot of money and, and whatever. I mean, they're consistent, they hand in their copy on time, they're part of the world, they're, they're brand. Um, that hurts women who want to write for these kinds of magazines because, you know, when things are flush, a magazine can take a chance on a, on any, on a person they don't know. Yeah. And um, many of these men's magazines will not know you. So I was lucky enough to, um, to get into Rolling Stone during a flush time. But, you know, I tried to get into Rolling Stone for years in the 90s when it was not so flush in the business, and it was harder. Um, so I, I think the economy has something to do with, with this. But um, 
But I think there's a certain type of complacency that, and women bear a level of responsibility. I've had conversations with women who, who believe there's a huge ceiling and thus don't even try. And I think that's ridiculous. Like you come up with it, and I know my editors, my editors personally are very supportive of women and my, my direct editor is constantly trying to bring women into the magazine. I mean, he's on a camp, like a crusade to do it and he's brought in a number of young women and really nurtured them. Um, and they're doing really, really, really well. So I, I think that women have to, you know, if you're a good reporter, you're a good reporter. If you have a good story, you have a good story. Pitch it, you know. I, I take offense. Like I saw this thing the other day. Actually, I think Evan, hate to say it, was part of this panel. Yeah, I think it was on how to pitch to how to how to pitch if you're a chick. And I was so offended by this. I was like, you pitch like a, excuse me, I mean, you pitch like a fucking person. You just pitch like a person. I think he had mixed feelings about it. I know, I really kind of wish I... He's a friend. I wish I could have yelled at him. I should have yelled at him. Well, I think his opinion, and I think this would be a... um, I mean, I don't want to put words... I've definitely heard the opinion that, you know, even though that is sort of a ridiculous premise for a panel, um, (laughs) that doing nothing is also ridiculous. You know, that, that simply shying away from the issue. I mean, that's... We, we do a year-end wrap-up for, for long-form of stories also, and I, and, and I want to sort of take the, oh, we don't, we don't participate in any of this byline stuff. We're coldly objective. And when you look at the National Magazine Awards, as a larger example, even, even amongst the people who are writing and are getting stories pitched mm-hmm. through, it seems like there is a, it, it's more difficult to win awards. It's more difficult to move up the hierarchy uh, of, of publications um, and so it becomes sort of a yeah. question of like you know you, you were saying that uh, older you know older people holding some of the jobs is part of it but it, it feels to me like we're 20 years you know we're 20 years past that yeah it is. how it long how long can these people possibly hold on and what what structurally really can change well I, I mean yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a couple of issues. Uh, I, I'm somebody who's stuck with this. I stuck with it for really 10 years before I really made it, right? I was like well into my 30s, you know? And, uh, um, and that's what it takes, by the way. Um, it takes that level of, of stick-to-itiveness. It takes many people, most of the people. I remember when I was, you know, a kid, and I would meet these older reporters, and they were like, oh, you know you're so young, like, I didn't even make it till I was 40, and I thought that was so, God, I've never happened to me, and, you know, that is exactly what happens, actually, that's the, that's the standard, yeah. <laughs> you know, sort of 37-ish to older, um, because it takes that, you have to live your life a bit to be able to write about life, um, which sounds like such a cliche, but it's true, you know, um, I think that young people, and, and women, and, you know, and, and women in particular, younger women, um, I think one issue is that the younger people tend to now write, go for the online jobs and go for the online gigs. It's a lot, I certainly would have done that if I were 23 now. Um, it's crappy training. You don't learn a damn thing. Don't do it. It's too, I mean, you know, but, I mean, it pays you something. I mean, it also takes such advantage 
I'm sorry, but you know, don't write for the friggin' Huffington Post and get paid zero, or write for the Daily Beast and get paid a hundred bucks. I mean, it's just, and I really don't care if Tina Brown hears me. I mean, I just, you know, it's insulting. It's super insulting. Well, it's also not you're not going to win a national magazine award for writing for the no. Box, I guess they did. Win this year was a, <laughs> this year was an incredibly weird example of, of a year where two women, there were two categories in which women were nominated. And 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 only one I think was, um, was what's the name? Was like public service, which tends to it, it can include some really terrific, you know, important political stories. And this woman did win from the New Yorker, and it was a great Sarah story. Stillman. Oh yeah, yeah, she's fantastic. She's, we're, we're, she's, come on, come on the show, Sarah Stone. Oh really? Yeah, she's great. Yeah. I love that story. Yeah. Um, and. But, you know, I could not believe they didn't nominate any profiles or any reporting, any, any feature writing. Feature friggin' writing. Profile writing, for God's sake. Seriously? No women? Like, women excel at writing profiles. There are some amazing female profilers. Like, Lisa DePaul is an amazing profiler. I don't understand. Um, and, and, you know, it also depends on getting, getting that far in, getting your stories nominated. And sometimes, you know, nominated by your editors. And uh, there are politics within magazines that um, where some of the some of the women don't even get their stories submitted. So it's you know I I, I don't really know um, I don't quite know what to say on it. I know that I don't work at, I don't I don't feel sexism at my magazine. Although there are no female editors. Okay? No female editors. That's just a statement of fact. No female editors. There are female assistants. Excuse me, there, there are female photo editors. The female, the, the head of the photographer, the, the, basically the visual guru of the entire winner, between Rolling Stone and, and Men's Journal, the director of photography is, is a woman. Um, and she's fantastic. But no women but no commissioning women, stories. No women commissioning stories. Um, at least not in the, the print magazine. Online, it may be different. I think there, is some, there are some people, um, at least as one woman, yeah. that may be commissioning. But in terms of the print magazine, the, the, the sort of you know, flagship publication, no. Yeah. All guys. Um, but I, I just, you know, I just am such a strong supporter of, of women just doing what they want to do and stop, you know, Thinking of thinking that you can't do something, or or um, and stop complaining, and just friggin' do it because you know what? Like people respect work. If you do good work, you will earn the respect of men and women. You know, and you will get there. You will get it. You know, if you if you do good work. I mean, to my knowledge, Sarah Stillman, that was like her first piece for the New Yorker. And she's she's quite young. And she's quite young. You know, I mean, and there are other really young women who have done some great pieces for the New Yorker recently. Um, and bravo to them, and I'm thrilled for them. And I'm, I, I think one of the issues as well is like women are not um, mentors to uh, other women. They don't have an old girls network. And I'm totally into, you know, supporting every single young woman I know that works, that wants to write, or who's, you know, is writing. You know, I'm hugely supportive of the you know, younger women I know that work at Rolling Stone, write for Rolling Stone, and. Um, you know, want to um, I cheer them on. I mean, and I really kind of wish I had women doing that for me. I didn't really have that. I had a couple, but not many. Um, but it's just something that, that I think women are afraid of being, they're not being nice. And it's like, fuck nice. I mean, honestly, like most, 
Guys don't give a shit about being nice. They don't care about their language. They don't care. It's, it's rewarded, you know? And I'm a feminine, you know, I'm a, like, I'm as girly in certain ways as you can get, but I'm, like, going to fight for my job. I'm going to fight for the amount of money I think I deserve. I'm going to fight for my stories to be nominated. If I think one of my stories deserves to get submitted for an ASME, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell my editor to do it. Yeah. They can submit as many things as they want. I mean, you know, you have to... You have to be, you have to play in the same world and don't expect that you're going to get sort of special favors because you're not going to. I mean, we can't afford to give special, I mean, this is the economy as well. Like, it's, it's a luxury. Right. No special favors. So if you want to, if you want to, you know, if you want to be a success, be a success. <laughs> That's All right. it. Well, right on. Episode 2, In the Books. I'm Max Linsky from Longform. Our show is also hosted by Aaron Lammer, also of Longform, and Evan Ratliff of The Atavist. It's edited by Lauren Kirchner. If you want to read any of the stories that Janet and Aaron were just talking about, make sure to check out the show notes on longform.org slash podcast. If you want to read something totally different, check out the latest piece from The Atavist or download Longform's iPad app at longformapp.com. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.